0: in january 2019 my editor mcferris and i went into his office and closed the door i dialed the essex police press office and put the call on speakerphone hello is there it's charlie at yellow advertiser thank you we were just about to run our most shocking story yet one which might finally explain some of the suspicious activity which had gone on in the 1989-1990 Shoebury paedophile ring investigation. Right, we're running a new Shoebury story this week, so we're going to need a comment again. Okay, so the story we're running, Dennis King was secretly working for Essex Police as an informant at the time that he was being investigated for prostituting children. There was a pregnant pause. Slimey, said the press officer. It had taken four years of work to get to this point. In this episode, we'll hear what led to that phone call. Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday.
1: Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's
0: tenacity yielded some astonishing results.
1: Essex police have announced a review
0: of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Our last episode ended with the devastation of the child victims and the charity workers representing them at the inexplicable conclusion of the Shoebury court case. Dennis King and Brian Tanner, who were expected to get anything from 15 years to life, were gifted with a sweetheart plea deal that knocked their sentences down to three and four years. Tanner's sentence was so paltry that he would be out within months. The charity workers struggled to make any sense of it. The official excuses didn't add up. Even the charity's lawyers couldn't explain it. They were left to form their own theories. They'd received intelligence that a named police officer had regularly visited Dennis King's flat, as well as the flat of a local heroin addict who we're calling Susie. Boys regularly congregated in her flat because she would let them bunk off school there to smoke cannabis and sniff glue. They reported that police officers would visit the flat to have sex with underage girls. This... Coupled with the campaign of intimidation that the whistleblowers about the ring had been subjected to by police officers, meant one prevailing theory was that there was some kind of corrupt link between Dennis King and local law enforcement. One of the charity workers went on to work as a social worker and spent time on a pioneering project where he and a colleague were seconded to and embedded with the police, monitoring and mapping sex offenders in the community. The more time he spent around the police, Watching the way they operated, the more a theory about Dennis King and Brian Tanner's treatment began to emerge. He didn't want to go on the record, so his words from our 2018 interview are being voiced by an actor.
1: I strongly suspected that at least King was a police informant, and the more experience I've had, I'm more convinced. Plus, I believe he probably had all sorts of dirt on all sorts of people.
0: This charity worker wasn't the only one to develop that theory. Mr X who we heard from in the last three episodes, also came to suspect that King was an informant. The court had heard that both King and Tanner had prior convictions for abusing children, although King's record appeared to be worse than Tanner's by some margin. Here's Mr Rex also speaking in 2018. There
1: was always something funny about the way he was treated by the courts. He always seemed to get off light. Some of us thought he was probably a police informant.
0: It was an interesting theory. Might that explain why multiple boys had reported the same police officer repeatedly visiting Dennis King's flat? The charity workers' suspicions grew when even after King and Tanner had been sent to prison, the police kept nosing around the charities and seemed particularly preoccupied with finding out what they knew about that officer and his activities in Shoebury. In one incident, police showed up one day in September 1990 at the home of Doreen Pond, who had been Jenny Grinstead's assistant at the Children's Society. A trained secretary, Doreen had the presence of mind to take shorthand notes of the visit. So spooked was she by this impromptu visit from the police that she tapped out a translation of her notes on her typewriter and mailed the whole lot to a manager at the Children's Society, along with a panicked letter. Doreen sadly died some years ago, but her notes and her letter survive. I feel as though I am living in a nightmare. I have been thrown into a sewer and left to
2: flounder. I feel that I am at breaking point. The only support I have had is from two project leaders, both of whom are miles away. I do believe that you are supportive, but you are new to the situation and cannot be expected to understand the horror
0: of being isolated in such a potentially explosive situation. When the police arrived, they began grilling Doreen about the same police officer who'd been named by the boys. Here's an excerpt from Doreen's shorthand notes. She used the officer's real name. We've changed it to Officer Z as he's never been prosecuted. To date, my attempts to find Officer Z and put the allegations to him have proved unsuccessful. Former colleagues are unsure as to whether he's alive or dead, and he had a common name, so without further identifying details he can't be traced through public records. They asked me if I had ever heard anything wrong about a police
2: officer. I said that I had, but I did not name him. They asked me if it was Officer Z, and I said yes. They said, what had I heard about him? And I said that he had had an affair with a young girl, well known to the police as a drug pusher. They said, was that Susie? And I said yes. They said, had Susie said anything to me? And I said that she had told me how kind and helpful Officer Zed was and how he came round to her flat frequently, but that other mothers had told me of pornographic photos of Susie and Officer Zed. Then they said they wanted to get hold of one of these photos,
0: and I said, why don't you ask Susie? So Doreen knew Susie personally, and Susie had told her that the officer was a regular visitor to her flat, a flat regularly filled with children using drugs and reportedly linked to the abuse of underage girls. Charity worker Mr. X also knew Susie personally. When I interviewed him, he told me a story that sounded like something from a conspiracy movie.
1: The infamous missing photographs. We heard they existed. That was a rumour, that there were dodgy photographs of Susie and this officer. But when the flat got torched, they were apparently in the flat, and then, all of a sudden, they weren't, along with a substantial amount of drugs. There was a fire at Susie's flat, and the story on the street was, ha ha ha, flat's been torched and the old bill couldn't find the grass because it went missing after this officer visited.
0: The murky links between the police and illicit goings-on in Shubury just seemed to get worse and worse. Could this really be true? That the flat, where police believed incriminating photographs of their colleague were stashed, mysteriously got destroyed in a fire? As it turned out, yes. I tracked down Susie's sister, who confirmed that there had been a fire at the flat, which left Susie in hospital with smoke inhalation and the property uninhabitable. Susie's sister knew nothing of her apparent links to the Shoebury case, but told me the following, which will be read by an actor.
3: She was a lost soul. She was really lovely, really kind, really caring. It was just the drink and the drugs that ruined her. She was in and out of rehab, in and out of prison. Stealing, shoplifting, that sort of stuff. Her life was colourful, to say the least, and this is a shock, but not a surprise, if that makes sense. She used to joke about, I know most of the police in Southend. That was a throwaway remark she'd sort of give. When I spoke to my niece, she said Susie had told her before that she had been a prostitute.
0: Unfortunately, I couldn't ask Susie any questions about the officer or Dennis King. It turned out she'd died, still a relatively young woman around 15 years after King and Tanner's prosecution. Her sister received a call from their mother to say Susie was in hospital with a torn liver. She assumed it was to do with Susie's alcohol abuse, but a shocking discovery at the hospital caused her to believe her sister had actually sustained a brutal assault.
3: I went to the hospital and she slipped right down in the bed. I went to get the nurses. When they took her off the bed, her gown fell open and she was black and blue. There wasn't an inch on her back and her sides that wasn't bruised. I said to her, Susie, you're black and blue. And she just looked at me and she went, best you don't know. And that's basically the last word she said to me. She'd had a kicking. She'd had a kicking for something.
0: The chilling exchange left Susie's sister wondering just how she'd really torn her liver. But she never found out. When Susie died a few days later, her death was recorded as natural and there was no inquest. Not long after Doreen was visited by the police in September 1990, the Shubury boys and their charity workers would encounter yet another instance of police in action. In the autumn, Brian Tanner was released from prison, just months after he'd been sentenced. Rob West counselled a number of the victims through his job at the Rainer Project, a youth justice organisation in Southend. Here he is explaining what happened next. One of my boys came in and said,
1: I almost got in his car. I said, what do you mean? Oh, he's out. I think it was Tanner. Tanner's out. He's, he, he came up with the same car. He's got the same car. He opened the door and went, Get in. They were out so quickly, it was like a blink of the eye. It might have been six months later. But all we knew is, He's out. What's he doing out already? He opened, you know, he'd actually open. This is the boldness of this guy. He opened his car door as the boy's walking by, Get in. And the boy at that point froze and almost got in, but instead he ran, came to see me at my office and said he's out and he's still got control over me. What am I going to do, Rob? I told my manager, my manager, we informed the police. What happened? Nothing to that guy.
0: That guy remained on the street. But why? Why would the police fail to take action over such a blatant breach of bail conditions? What did King and or Tanner have over the authorities? It was late 2018 when I found a potential answer to that question. I'd spent years tracking down people named in documents as having been linked to the Shubury case. Some of the most intricately involved sources proved the most difficult to find. Some I've still not found. But there was one who everybody said would be a gold mine of information, yet who eluded me for years. Were they dead? Had they moved abroad? As it turned out, no, they still lived locally. They were just retired, ex-directory, and kept an extremely low profile online. I eventually followed an internet breadcrumb trail which led me to a Facebook page. It wasn't registered under the source's name, and I had no idea whether this really was the person I was looking for. Perhaps I was just reading online tea leaves and riding a wave of wishful thinking. I sent them a message, but knew they may never read it anyway. We weren't friends on Facebook, so my message would enter an often ignored second inbox. All I could do was wait. Months later, the Facebook user replied in vague terms and agreed to speak to me on the telephone. It was them, the elusive source who'd attended so many of the most crucial meetings on the Shubury case. However they were deeply suspicious of me. Clearly still carrying the bruises of the events of almost 30 years earlier, they asked me how they could be sure I wasn't some sort of undercover agent, just trying to find out how much they knew. It was a good question, and I wasn't sure how to answer it. I suggested meeting in a location of their choosing, and said I would do all the talking. I would ask them nothing, and would simply talk them through everything I'd already found out, who was cooperating with me, and what my plan was. They agreed, and we arranged to meet in a Southend pub. That first meeting lasted around an hour. I brought them a stack of stories I'd already published on the case and talked them through my investigation so far. They left reassured that I genuinely was an investigative reporter, but still fearful that there would be consequences for talking to me. When I persuaded them to meet again some time later, they practised counter-surveillance, suddenly changing our meeting place with half an hour to go and switching to a totally different town. That time, we spoke for hours. At the end of that second meeting, they said they had something they needed to tell me, but on the proviso that I could never name them. At the time of the Shubury police investigation, they had worked for an agency involved in the case. In the following years, their agency was one of several linked to the case which lost all its funding and had to close down. By then, the source had been most of the way through a social work degree and had based their dissertation around case studies from their work. The closure would be a disaster. They would lose access to all of their official paperwork. Their dissertation would be ruined. They might not get their degree. So they made a decision. When the organisation closed they took all of the pertinent case files home with them. One of the cases they were writing about in their dissertation was the Shubury paedophile ring. In 2018, new data protection laws had been introduced allowing the authorities to impose unlimited fines on anybody who breached laws involving private information. Having read about the laws in the paper, the source had panicked and started burning all of their old documents in weekly bonfires. The week they found my message on Facebook, they'd had one pile left to burn. They rifled through it and discovered that it contained a large stack of paperwork from the Shubury case. If I protected them, they told me, I could read it. Some weeks later, as I started looking through the files, the source apologised. They'd originally had more documents on the Shubury case, they said, but they must have already burned the rest. Still, there were hundreds of pages here. Amongst them were many vital documents from the 1989-90 case, which until then, the charity workers had told me about, but I'd never actually seen, because their own copies had got lost over the last three decades. For example, this source had a copy of the document that the charity workers had drawn up with the NSPCC lawyer, detailing all of the intelligence they felt had been ignored by the police. But there was some more paperwork here that wasn't from 1989-90. It was from 1993. And it was about another investigation into Dennis King, in Shrewsbury for grooming children and sharing them with other men. The only difference was that this time, he was under investigation for abusing and sharing girls, rather than boys. One of the victims we heard from in our early episodes, Zach, had told me, when I found him, that King had groomed girls as well as boys. It wasn't just boys, was it? It weren't just boys. It wasn't just boys? No. Okay. So what was going on with girls? I don't know, but they were going in and out of there. One of my school friends that went round, she was going in there. And when you say going in there, are you talking about Dennis King's flat? Yeah. Charity workers in the eighty-nine ninety case had almost exclusively received information about Dennis King and boys, but in 1993, there was no mention of boys. The paperwork in the source's 1993 pile only mentioned girls. One fairly detailed document outlined a particular young girl's story, which was eerily similar to the stories of the boys in the prior case. Here's an excerpt.
3: alleges contact by King and friends of King alleges possession of pornographic tapes, arrested for several burglaries, refuses to attend education provision.
0: The girl had named two other girls on the estate in connection with her allegations. She told one agency working with her that since seeking help, drugs had been planted on her, the exact same thing that allegedly happened to Mr X when he was taken to his van by police officers and found marijuana on the seat. So three years on from the Shubury paedophile ring investigation, there was continuing suspiciousness about the way in which people were treated after making allegations against Dennis King. This girl, like so many of the previous Shubury victims, had repeatedly attempted suicide. She'd also on one occasion been found sleeping rough with what was described as serious facial damage. The document continued.
3: Strong concerns for her safety. Serious questions on the way the case has been handled. We are at a standstill with our work. We are simply responding to her ever-increasing self-destructive actions. There is no apparent progress being made. She is very much at risk of damage, especially from herself.
0: So, just as Tanner had completed his paltry jail term and got right back to his old tricks, King too appeared to have fallen back into a familiar pattern upon his release. But why, once again... Did it appear that little was being done about it? Why would a child abuse victim have drugs planted on them? I found a potential answer to that question in a bombshell document sitting in the same pile. The source's collection from 1993 included two sets of minutes, both from meetings between an agency representing the girl and the officer assigned to the new Dennis King investigation. That officer was PC Bob Fuel the same policeman who'd been assigned as the Charity Workers' Liaison Officer in the 8990 investigation. We heard in prior episodes how the Charity Workers had believed Fuel wanted to investigate properly, but was hampered by a combination of institutional sabotage and his own shortcomings. Here in my hands I held two sets of minutes which affirmed the Charity Workers' beliefs. They recorded Bob Fuel speaking candidly about efforts from above him, to suppress investigations into Dennis King. He seemed frustrated. He complained of interference and speculated as to the cause, wondering, on the record, whether there was some sort of Freemason conspiracy going on. The first set of minutes was from June 1993. When my eyes fell on a particular line, I jumped out of my chair and rushed to my editor Mick's desk. Without saying a word, I put the document in front of him, and pointed to two words. Here's an extract from that set of minutes.
1: A senior officer has been blocking investigation, did not pass information to Scotland Yard, does not think King is important enough to resource. We talked around motives and concluded it could be conspiracy, although incompetence and attitude were factors. King, registered informant, although Bob says this had no bearing on apparent police inaction.
0: Registered Informant Here was Bob Fuel in an on the record meeting with a local agency casually mentioning that Dennis King was a registered informant and that a senior officer was blocking an investigation into him. Here's an excerpt from the second set of minutes taken in august nineteen ninety three.
1: King has moved to Lincoln to live with a county councillor, Ivor House. The investigation has been resourced. Bob Fuel to work alone. Perhaps we could set a time when we can meet, to talk about strategy in what appears to be inaction and incompetence on the part of the statutory authorities.
0: I could hardly believe what I was reading. For the second time in a row, when allegations had been received that Dennis King was pimping out children to a network of paedophiles, Essex police had left Bob Fuel in charge, and this time it had given him no additional resources. Meanwhile. Amidst efforts from above to sabotage the investigation, Dennis King had suddenly upped sticks and left Essex, fleeing to Lincolnshire, where he had apparently moved in with a county councillor. How did Dennis King, a serially convicted thief and child molester who just served time for running a paedophile ring, wind up receiving an offer of shelter from a politician 120 miles away? I managed to ascertain that there was an Ivor Howes who lived in a property in Lincoln called Bank House at that time. He had been elected as an independent county councillor in 1973 and served a single term, but was no longer a councillor by the time King went to live with him. Howes died shortly after King got there. His death was registered in November 1993, three months after Bob Fuel reported that King had moved into his house. Where King went after that is unknown, but he appeared in the local magistrate's court a year after Howe's death, in December 1994, charged with four counts of theft. The details of those alleged offences are presently unknown. The case appears not to have been reported by the local papers. The implications of King seemingly being protected because he was an informant were shocking. Bob Fuel, in those minutes where he said King was an informant, also claimed that the fact King was working for the police bore no relation to their lack of action over his alleged crimes. But how could that be? We all know about police informants. We've all seen it on TV. We all know the routine. The police hit up a small-time offender for some information, bung them some cash, turn a blind eye to their own offending, negotiate them a more lenient sentence. Whatever the payoff, they're rewarded in some way for providing information which helps to solve a more important crime or bring down a more serious offender. But what crime could be more important than running a paedophile ring which abuses children? What could Dennis King possibly be informing on that was worse than his own offending? Was it just because, as some sources suggested earlier in the series, the police viewed these victims as scum due to their offending and their social background? Was that why the police felt comfortable turning a blind eye to what Dennis King was doing? When I published my story about Dennis King's informant status, the founder of one of the UK's largest child abuse charities spoke of his horror at the revelation and called for a completely independent investigation. Peter Saunders founded the National Association for People Abused in Childhood, or NAPAC, He said Bob Fuel's admissions in the meeting meant that police had effectively used the lives and safety of children as bartering chips. Here's Peter repeating what he told me at the time.
1: I can't believe the police would employ, because that's effectively what they were doing, a child abuser. That is inexcusable. I have no doubt many of the characters involved in that will be retired now and living on cushy pensions somewhere, but they need to be held to account We all understand police employing what we might call common criminals as informants, but someone that commits these crimes is in a different, vile category. I hope heads roll. It's entirely inappropriate for police forces to investigate themselves. This was extremely bad behaviour, and it should be investigated by somebody completely independent.
0: But several victims were unconvinced that King really was an informant. He may have been on the books as an informant, they said but they suspected that was a cover story. As one said to me, King was being rewarded by the people we were supposed to be relying on to take him off the streets. It's just ridiculous. I mean, King wasn't exactly a bank robber, he was a kiddie fiddler. So who was he supposed to be informing on? Who did he have dirt on? It's a big can of worms. Another of King's victims, Ben, who we heard from in prior episodes, was also sceptical. I
1: just don't know what he would be informing on. To me, that doesn't make sense. My gut feeling is he wasn't an informant. He just had some dirt on a high-ranking copper. That is my gut feeling. I don't think he was an informant. I think he was being looked after. He didn't have the character or the social skills to be an informant. Everything happened in his flat. I never really knew him to not be in. It wasn't like he was out and about and you'd see him all around Shoebury. Whenever you went past his flat, the light was on you'd see people moving about. He just struck me as a part of a ring of creepy weirdos.
0: Was Dennis King regularly visited by a police officer because he was an informant? Or was he receiving favours because he knew too much about a police officer who was regularly visiting his flat? This is one of the unsolved mysteries of the Shubury case. Every police officer I've traced who worked on this case either claims not to remember it, or refuses to discuss it. In response to the telephone call we heard at the beginning of this episode to Essex Police's press office, the force refused to comment on King's informant status, citing national guidelines which say that police should not answer questions about the use of what they call covert human intelligence sources. As long as these guidelines remain in place, there can be no accountability for any UK police force's use of informants, but Essex Police insisted it always robustly investigated allegations of abuse. My investigation remains ongoing, and I'm always hopeful that somebody else will come forward with more information that will help piece the jigsaw together. But for the meantime, whether King was protected because he was a useful informant or because he knew too much about too many powerful people, we simply do not know. We know that he was named as an informant by the police officer in charge of the investigation. We know that that officer said that somebody above him was suppressing investigations into Dennis King. But the reason why remains open for debate. In future episodes, we'll hear how Essex Police started a new investigation into the case as a result of my work. But in the next episode, we'll look at how it wasn't only the police's response to the Shubury case which left the charity workers distraught, and confused. In part five, we'll investigate how things went wrong in the social services department at Essex County Council. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatroncom forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised, will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you.
3: From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore, for more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com channel slash archant.